Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is four years old now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. To be quite honest, this week I'm cheating the format a little bit because my guest is the extraordinary Paul Coxage. The London-based designer has built a reputation over the past 20 years for creating projects that push the limits of technology and materials. During that time, he has melted polystyrene cups in an oven to make a lampshade, treated steel as if it was a folded piece of paper, worked with concrete from the floor of his own studio and fused metal under snow. His CV contains major exhibitions at galleries such as Friedman Bender in New York and Carpenter's Workshop Gallery in London, installations in Milan, public art projects such as Please Be Seated and Drop for the London Design Festival, and products that range from picnic blankets inspired by the pandemic to a Bluetooth device that gives old speakers a second life. His most recent exhibition, called Coalescence, which was held for a frustratingly short amount of time in Liverpool Cathedral, investigated coal. Paul, lovely to see you. Thanks very much for doing this. It's great to see you. It's been a while since we've had a real chat and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Good. Oh, I'm glad. You know, it has been a while. Tell me, was that intro reasonably accurate? I think it's a great introduction. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting hearing other people describe my journey because it's been so fast paced. It's been so varied. It was something I'd, I'd never imagined my life would be like this when I was studying at the Royal College of Art graduating. It's been an incredibly fast-paced and varied two decades. In one way, everything's changed. In another way, I'm fueled by the same thing, which is the pursuit for new ideas, originality, and something that really connects with who I am, you know, and something that gives me a very healthy lifestyle. I hope they're the sort of the ingredients. So we're talking over Zoom. But we have a tradition on this podcast of trying to locate where the guest is talking from. I think it stems from the days when we used to record in people's studios. So where are you at the moment, Paul? I'm in my studio, which is East London Hackney. After graduating from the Royal College, we came east because this is where affordable creative spaces were. So we made that decision and we've stayed put. It's been really it's, it's amazing to look around the streets here, complete transformation, mm. but this has been our creative home. Mm. And can you describe it, how you work for the listeners? That's a, that's a really good question because I try not to sort of overanalyze how I work or repeat how I work. I just, I sort of keep it very emotional and sort of... But in terms of the environment that you're in, are you surrounded by materials? Are they computers or... The space has got, it's got a workshop, which is important. It's not a huge workshop, but it's got stuff in there. I mean, if someone who knew how to run a workshop came in, they would be like, this is not organized. What's going on here? But it suits what we do. You know, there's a little bit of everything, you know, you can weld, you can cut wood, you can solder, you've got electronics, you've got all sorts of lighting, you've got materials. There's so many things that, you know, if I have an idea, I go in, I slide this big green door to one side, I go in and there's a sort of you know, it's it's sort of an extension of my creative brain and the people who work with me know where bits and pieces are. And they have names which don't relate to what they are. They're sort of like nicknames. But remember, these tools and machines and materials have been with me for 20 years. So they're sort of like extensions of, they're like friends of mine. And I'm intrigued now. So what, <laughs> nicknames for what? What do you call your various tools? Nothing rude, by the way. <laughs> Nothing rude. No, but like, so there's one thing which is called pass me a Cheryl. And the Cheryl is not what it is actually, but it's just just a sort of a, probably a mistake I made naming it. It just became a nickname, but the people who work for me know what that is. Or I've had this book of filters. It's such a simple little thing where I can just fan it out and I've got all these different colors and these different ways I can kind of alter light. And that, that little book, you know, it hasn't got a name, but I'll just say, you know, has anyone seen that book of RGB and, you know, the thing that folds out like a fan and people know what I mean by that. So mm. there's little tools which are in that workshop, as I say, that are very personal, but help speedily get creative projects on the move. There's also a, another area where there's computers. We try to keep that sort of relatively tidy. So that's where people are working, project managers, studio manager, design team, you know, they have their own zone, they have their desk. And then there's my room, which is a bit more chaotic, where it's more of an experimental space where there's things I've found, things I've printed out, drawings on the wall. It's a bit more sort of inspirational. 
How big is your team nowadays? It's still around seven, eight people, relatively small. The design team is actually very small. You know, it's, it's myself and three others. Right. So it's, it's a very tight knit and I'm happy with that. There has been opportunities where we, we could have expanded, but to be honest, I run a studio, but I, I don't run it like a corporate business, although we are a business and Joanna Pino, my co-founder, she, mm. she runs it with that mentality, which is very successful for us. But the way I like to operate is very much impulsive, emotional. And so I need to be very close to all the projects and be able to move quickly. Mm. Your latest project, which rather unfortunately is just about to close at Liverpool Cathedral, but you're telling me that it might come to London in September. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been really, I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of that project, you know, because yeah, it's yeah. Uh, very much an idea I had and then I just wanted to bring it to life. Yeah, let's talk about it, Paul, because, yeah. because it's, it's in Liverpool Cathedral and it investigates coal. Yes. And you've suspended 2,000 pieces of coal using 16 kilometres of steel wire from the cathedral ceiling. I mean, the question is why? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Thanks. <laughs> in one way, it's extremely simple. And I love things to have a simplicity to them. And what the piece does, it illustrates energy consumption. And so we did a calculation that was wondering how much coal would be needed to power one light bulb if it was turned on for an entire year. And we did the mathematics and we had that figure, which is over half a tonne. And so the sculpture in Liverpool suspended in the cathedral is a representation of that amount of coal. So on a very simple level, people are looking at face on in a clear way, exactly what it takes to power light. Yeah, and yeah. that's for me, it's a sharp idea for the time that we're living in. You know, you turn on the news, or you look at the apps, politicians, environmentalists, you know, scientists are all talking about moving away from fossil fuels, the cost of living, the cost of electricity, how we generate electricity. So I love the idea that it's of the moment. And that was one of its real driving forces for me. You know, I had the idea last year, I knew I needed to release it to the world. And that was a very important aspect of the project. And then on the other side, it's about craft, it's about making, and it's about the curiosity I had to work with coal. And that's a big part of the project that comes from my making background. So it's not size specific in that sense. I mean, you could have done this anywhere else. You didn't walk into Liverpool Cathedral and think, I know, suspend coal. No, it wasn't like that. Mm. The idea was there. We found this incredible coal mine still active in South Wales. And that was a beautiful moment because that was when I first got hands on with coal. Did you go down a mine? Yeah, yeah. There's a big part of the project. And that was really part of, with all my projects, you know, we don't subcontract out making, you know, we don't subcontract out designing, we don't subcontract anything. We own it. We love that part of the process because it, A, makes you feel very authentic as a creative studio. And secondly, it makes the project so much better because you understand materiality, where things come from, and that connects to other work. It inspires the next projects. But to find this active coal mine, to go and very generously, they let us into their world. You know, they opened their doors. They allowed us to spend hours and hours in their coal mine and to actually touch the anthracite. And that's the type of coal which they're mining. It's so pure. It's so high carbon content. It sparkles. It challenges your associations with coal. You think, well, I thought coal was kind of dirty and dusty and not very nice to look at. This type of coal is almost looking at some kind of glass or even diamond. And that added a dimension, which you see when you look at the pictures from the Liverpool Cathedral installation. But presumably also it gives you an insight into the kind of lives that people who mined this stuff so we could turn a light bulb on lived. I mean, I've been down a coal mine. And um, in South Wales, called the Big Pit, many years ago. And I remember them turning off the lights and it was a really disturbing experience. It was properly hard work. Yeah. I mean, again, it's interesting you say that. I mean, my dad is from Wales. Right. He's not from a, a creative background. He's an incredible man from a very working class background. He can talk to anyone. He came to the coal mine with me. And, you know, in a way, it's good that I have someone like my dad there because, you know, I come from kind of up in London, you know, I, I love talking to people, but having someone like my dad meeting someone, you know, from maybe a similar background, that working class background, there's a beautiful connection there. You know, their eyes lit up meeting my dad. So he went down the coal mine with me and my brother and they did the same thing. We spent hours walking down. And at one point, the guide, the miner, he said, look, let's just try something. He tapped our helmets, turned off all our lights, and we were just left in complete darkness. Mm. And in a way, that's one of my childhood fears is no light, you know. Mm. 
but mm. there was something about it being so underground with no internet, being with my dad, my brother, and this gentleman. It kind of wasn't scary, actually. It was almost like a letting go moment. It's very, yeah, yeah. very peaceful and quite beautiful. Again, it was the opposite effect I had, but just the sort of the letting go and being so underground and, and knowing that actually we are just specks, aren't we, in terms of the time of the planet and all those kinds of spiritual questions we always have moments in time. But again, imagine if I'd subcontracted out that part of the process, I wouldn't have had that emotional connection. But yeah, the, as I say, the materiality was beautiful. I'm looking at a piece of coal now, actually. And each time I look at it, it reflects light back at me. And what's going to happen to the piece now, Paul? Because I mean, it's coming to a close at Liverpool Cathedral. Are there plans to bring it to London? For instance, it could go anywhere else. It doesn't have to be London-centric, this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was good that it started, you know, in, in Liverpool. I mean, coal mines are nearby. You know, northern cities, northern places have a connection to coal for obvious reasons, if you look back when we had coal mining in this country. So it was great for it to be there. And, to you know, the people I was speaking to in the cathedral, some of their families, like, I think, did you mention? But, you know, there's a connection to coal. So it was good that it started there. It was good that it started mm. in such a public place. It wasn't a gallery. It wasn't a ticketed event. It was open to the public. And to be in a cathedral where they are actually talking about energy consumption, the cost of living. So these are the types of discussions that are taking place in the cathedral independent of our sculpture. So it was a really nice tie-in. So the people walking in, open mind, the cathedral is stunningly beautiful. It has painting from really famous artists. There's Tracy Emin, there's a neon piece, beautiful stained glass windows. So it was at home there in terms of narrative and creativity. Mm. But to answer your question, we've had a lot of opportunities for it to move and to travel. We've partnered with our gallerist in London, Carpenters Workshop, so they are really supporting the project. But yeah, I'd love for it to come to London. Although Liverpool's not far away, for some people it was a bit of a stretch. So I think London will be on the roadmap. Good. Well, we'll look out for that. I mean, one of the fascinating things about your practice, and I think uh, this latest project kind of emphasises that, is its sheer variety and, and sense of invention. I mean, you've created crowdfunded products like the the vamp the bluetooth speaker you've done gallery pieces public artworks installations there are a couple of bits of more permanent architecture and you've worked with this extraordinary range of materials some of which are extremely light others are very very heavy do you see a thread that runs through all this other than your brain <laughs> i do see a thread i mean when you describe what you've just described in words i mean that gets me excited i just love the idea that i take my lead by an idea you know, I've always believed in that, you know, and, and what does that do? It takes me to places that I would have never have dreamt I'd be going. I meet people that I would never have dreamt that I would meet. And creatively, I learn so much about materiality and making and process. And I've got stories to tell and the connection to the people that I eventually enjoy our work. That's really the driving force. It's the, connect, it's the connection to people. And each one of my pieces, yes, they make good pictures and you know, yes, there's innovative ways of how they're put together and made and all the rest of it. But in the end, I think it's the conversations and the connections to humanity, which I'm mostly interested in. Mm. Can we talk a little about process, Paul? Yeah. Do you have a conscious sense of how these ideas emerge when you have them? Or do they just spring out from the ether? I mean, I'm quite intrigued by how you get to these places in the, in the first instance. You know, you sometimes hear from some people who talk about creativity. They say, oh, no idea is original or, you know, nothing comes from nowhere. It's always a connection back to something. And, you know, probably there is a lot of truth in that. But to be honest, I emotionally don't experience ideas in that way. I really feel them as an emotion. I feel when they're about to happen and I, it, it does something to me. I just, I know something's just happened and I can't put that into words, but I, I have sort of an ad adrenaline rush. I, I feel as though something's happened and I know I've been taken to a place that I've never been before, experienced before. And then it's the bit of me sort of trying to understand what that was. And then it's about drawing and, and talking to people and going to the studio. And can that happen at any time of the day? Do you suddenly spring up at night and go, oh my God, I've got one here. <laughs> I felt, I felt the feeling. I, I must get to my sketch pad. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as, you know, I think everyone's got this this creative side to them. I just think that, in a way, sadly, a lot of people don't have that space in their life to allow it to mature in, in the same way I have. And as I've explained, this has been a long finessing of my personality to allow creativity to be able to grow and to follow it. 
you know, that, that's quite a luxury as well. You know, like I could call Joanna tomorrow, my business partner and say, look, I've got an idea. I'm going to go to Venice and blow some glass. I could do that. You know, my lifestyle, my job enables me to do that, to be spontaneous. Yeah, it, it could happen any time of day. And not all of them are, are wonderful. Not, not all of them come to life and be beautiful pieces, but that's okay as well. You know, they slot in. And I find that a remarkable point. You know, we, we're working on projects. You know, even today I was on a call with someone who wants some work and I'm, my brain is going back 10 years to an idea which I could bring to life this year. Mm. Mm. And it starts with a drawing. Once you've had the idea, is that, is that how you first begin to translate that idea? Yeah, a drawing or words on a piece of paper or, or even now voice memos right. or a photograph or something that reminds me of that. I'm not such a great sort of writer. I, we have a copywriter who I've spent a lot of time working with. And so that process, we're quite good at writing things together. But in terms of the way I communicate ideas, it is through the visual world of drawing or sketching things down of photography. Mm. So as your career has progressed, you've had more opportunities and presumably there's more money to work on different projects with different manufacturers. Does that change the way you think? Does it affect the ideas you have, I wonder? You know, there's a side as well, which may not be coming out here with me being light poor and happy poor, which 95% of the time I am, but there is a tension in my process. You know, I'm I'm quite ambitious. You know, I want to do a lot. I really want to stay true to my creativity. And sometimes, like many creative people you talk to, there's opportunities that could take them somewhere, which financially could be good, but it sort of, it may compromise what they want to do. You know, the studio, we've always not turned away from them, but understood if we were going to enter that path, we, we do it on our own terms. But there is a push and pull to my process. You know, nothing we do is easy. And, you know, that, that coalescence project that wasn't straightforward. You know, there, that, there was moments in that where I was pretty, you know, anxious and pretty confused about what I was doing. You know, we, we were, I was drilling thousands of pieces of coal. It was labor intensive. You know, I was pretty exhausting. And as I said, you know, financially committing to it, all the studio was full of coal dust. There was, you know, people were sort of thinking like, what are we doing? You know, we, we didn't have an opportunity to set it up and look at it before it got to the cathedral. There was high risk at that moment. You know, would it look good? Would it behave the way we imagined? So it's not all plain sailing, but that component of tension is something that I manage and the studio manages because in the end, the effortlessness of the work, the lightness of touch, the how was that done? That comes from hard work and moments of tension. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the tension because... Well, you know, when I do these things, I take a, a lot of uh, clippings from the internet and magazines and other places and other podcasts and recordings that you've done. And the word anger came up on a number of occasions, quite surprisingly. So uh, do you get angry ever during the process? Yeah, I do. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, I'm, I make out that I'm not running a studio and I'm floating around being creative, but there's, there's moments where, you know, like things get in the way, life gets in the way, clients change their mind, the budgets are slashed, the opportunity of where you thought you were going to show something is taken away from you. And by the way, that was a component of coalescence. We had a venue which was there and that got taken away. This was last year. And when I'd got the material, I'd committed the studio to making it and it just, for whatever reason, was taken away from me. I thought this is this cannot happen. And that side of my character, which I actually put down to my dad's side, that kind of real working class determination, you know, and never give up. And I just made it happen. You know, I said to Joanna, I said, look, we, we have to get this project out there. You know, it's now or we're going to lose the momentum. And then suddenly you have this opportunity, this amazing conversation we had with the cathedral. And suddenly they they said, Paul, you don't need to sell it to us anymore. The space is yours. And then suddenly you get to the calm bit again. But it's the kind of the the flow of emotion that whether, you know, I'll be able to cope with it for the rest of my life, but you know, it's, it's part of it. I can't not say it's you know, it is there. It's interesting because not many people confess to that. I mean, I've done 92 of these and <laughs> I've never talked about anger to anybody before. So it's quite intriguing. Yeah. yeah. Um, when we first met, which must have been around the turn of the millennium, you were fascinated by light. You had the styrene lampshade made from polystyrene cups that you melted in an oven. And another project I remember was Neon, which are a series of kind of handmade glass vessels filled with natural gas that glowed beautifully in the dark won the Bombay Sapphire Prize in 2003, as I recall. There was Vale, which is the early project for the um, Shirovsky Crystal Palace in Milan in 2008, where 
you had a kind of curtain of crystals. If you stood in a certain place and looked in the mirror, an image of the Mona Lisa came up. I remember looking at it for the first time, didn't get it at all, couldn't see what was going on, was like shrugging my shoulders and you came up to me and said, no, stand there and look there. And it was extraordinary. And I think at that point, I kind of had you down as a kind of natural successor to Ingo Maurer, the um, renowned lighting designer and artist. I think you exhibited with him early on in your career as well. But light obviously wasn't enough, ultimately, for you, Paul. You wanted to move on. Yeah, I, and I did. And the Ingo Maurer connection was, was a really beautiful one. And, you know, sadly, he's passed away, but he was extremely generous to us as a studio, to myself and Joanna. He he opened up his doors, you know, he collaborated with us in his exhibitions in uh, Milan for two years. And that really was a springboard. You know, he saw something in what I was doing. And instead of saying, I will have that for my collection, he said, I think I should allow you to present this work to the Milan audience. And that's, as you say, that that got us out there. People, you know, we, we met thousands of people. We won that glass prize, the Bombay Sapphire glass prize with Neon. Mm. And that money actually got us from my bedroom in Labrook Grove to our studio in Hackney because that paid a year's rent just from that one prize. But yeah, those projects were, they were about light. That was very important ingredient, but it wasn't the only thing because within those pieces was glass making. It was electricity. It was nature. The, the life zero one was when you place the flower in the vase, the living properties of the flower because it contains water turns on the light. When that flower dries and dies, the light turns off. So there was more than just the light aspect but what's interesting is that you remember me talking to you about Vale, and that piece was in a way quite a performance piece because it, you thought it was one thing, a curtain of 1500 crystals, but actually when you looked in the mirror through optics and light, you have this image that people were saying it's magic. But the conversation was the piece for me. I was talking to you and then 20 people an hour about that. And that was, again, as I said, that connection is the people who kind of made the work. Mm. I mean, it was magical. And those early pieces, they did have a bit of, well, I mean, I think you've talked to Glenn Adams about this in the past, but there, there was obviously science in there, but there was this sense of magic with them as well, which was really, really, really intriguing. So was it a conscious decision to go in other directions or did that happen organically? I think, you know, I think, again, maybe this is the side where that side of sort of wanting to, you know, to push myself personally, you know, I, I love the scale of objects, but I knew that I could go bigger, not for just for scale reasons. It was about public going out there into the in the public realm so things like please be seated or time loop or here comes the sun as you mentioned or you know many other pieces kiss for example these kind of went out of the tabletop plinth dimension to the public realm and that's very very i love that type of work because you're talking then to sort of councils or developers you know joanna loves that side of the business because it's very you know structured there's big budgets there's a great team there's a will, a collective will to bring originality to life. And so I love that type of work that the studio does. And it's a very, very important type. But then like the flick of a switch, we could be bouncing to a very small object or a gallery piece. And, we, and the bouncing from scales to the types of client to public to private, that variety is the healthy bit for me because it means I don't feel stuck. Yeah. I mean, you talk about relationships and the importance of human relationships, and there are a few relationships that have been really important to your career. One with uh, Mark Bender, the Freeman Bender Gallery, meeting him. How did that affect your work? That connection to the gallerist world is a, is a really special one and a complex one because you're going on a journey. You know, it's a very intimate journey. You know, and Mark Bender, you know, he's been doing Freeman Bender around the sort of same time as that we've been running a studio obviously had a lot more experience before we met, but we've sort of gone on a journey together and especially me with him. I learned a lot from him and continue to learn from him, but it's very much the connection's quite amazing. For example, I could, you know, it's not like I'm presenting to a, a developer in that sense. It could be as simple as, Hey Mark, I've got an idea. Can I show you? And I will just send him a sketch and he would say, let's do it. It, it could be as quick as a minute. Does he say no? Often there is no sometimes, and mm. there's, there's sometimes timing no's as well. But sometimes it's yes, let's do it. More recently, Carpenter's Workshop, for example, when we talked about coalescence, we said, look, we've got this venue, we've got the material, we've got the design. You know, we we would love you to come on board with us. And it was a matter of yes, that fast-paced nature of a gallerist mm. connection with an artist, I suppose, is why it's there. 
you get rid of all those other layers. There's no, there's nothing in the way of it. It's just pure creativity. Can I ask, I mean, this isn't about pure creativity. This is what the gallery gets out of a piece like Coalescence. Will they sell individual lumps of coal ultimately? Or where does the money from their point of view, where does the money come from? <laughs> where does the money come from? I mean, Coalescence is a piece where it will tour. I'd love it to tour. You know, we are, there's a lot of spin-offs of that work. There probably will be smaller versions of that piece. There'll be different variations of it and different scales, ways it can be in a home setting. You know, is this the main driver for the work? No, but Mm. if it can be there to support and fund and to get some money to then finance new work, I'm open to that. You know, it can go to museums. There is a commercial aspect to it. I've been using the coal dust as I was drilling the coal, I was collecting all of the dust and I've been doing these paintings with coal. So there's going to be two dimensional artworks big pieces, you know, two meter by three meter canvases out of coal dust. There's amazing kind of spin-offs of it. Mm. So we are aware that money needs to be part of a creative process. It's not the driver, but it is there. And I'm tuned to that as well. You know, as I say, you know, I, I need to generate money to keep the studio alive. Most importantly, to help keep the, the creative freedom and finance new work. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Just to let you know, the Material Matters Fair is returning to Blanche House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Once again, each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There'll also be a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the recycled aluminium giant Hydro will be there, as will the Wood Awards, Solid Wool, Hagen Hinderdale and Mixed Metals, for example. And there'll be some exciting new names, such as the Tire Collective, Nova Vita Design, and Anna Bridgewater, also known as Avalon. If you're interested in taking part, do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Going back to your gallery work, I mean, the first fruit of that relationship with Friedman Bender, I think, was poised, which is a steel table weighing, what, half a tonne? Yeah. That almost looks like it's dancing on its tiptoes as it bends and cantilevers. Intriguingly, the inspiration for that piece came from a piece of paper, right? Yeah. And I remember with a piece of paper in a hotel lobby with Mark Bender, you know, I just took this bit of paper from a magazine and said, look, this is the gesture. This is what I'm trying to do. I want to make a table that looks as though, as you say, it's like a dancer on tiptoes. So it looks as though it's in motion. It looks as though it could topple, but actually it's going to be perfectly poised. And he said, how would you do that? And I said, I'm not quite sure yet, but that's the vision, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to push it because what was interesting, I'd never done a piece of furniture before. So if you study design in the traditional way, you wouldn't design poised. Mm. It would just be go against all of the in brackets design principles, you know, like it would be too heavy. It's too expensive to make. It's whatever, all those things, but that's not what I was doing with that piece. And actually the pursuit of working with physics and balance, I, I went to Imperial college and spoke to mathematicians and because I needed to know that calculation. And now that's that calculation is on the wall, which we refer back to a lot because a lot of our work has center of gravity and balance. But that work was such a simple starting point. It took about an over a year of calculation. But in the end, I loved the fact that it's just one piece of steel rolled perfectly. It's the mm. engineering, it's the math that was the hard bit. The fabrication, yes, it's difficult. It's not impossible, obviously, but the gesture of just one piece of material you know, rusty metal, core 10, patinated. It's a beautiful piece. Mm. Another piece you do with the gallery that you're often asked about, we can't really avoid, is Evacuation Evicted, the series of, of pieces you there, which was a collection of furniture made from drilling out the concrete floor of your Hackney studio in frustration, maybe anger, we can talk about that, Yeah, uh, at being evicted or potentially evicted by your landlord. Yeah, I mean, and the anger was there actually on that point. Mm. I felt really connected to Hackney. You know, we're still here, luckily, but, you know, I felt very connected to it as a place. When I got here, there were metal turners, there were wood workshops, art studios everywhere. It's changed a lot. It's gone through a process of gentrification. There's a lot of fancy apartments, you know, good and bad, that discussion. We don't need to discuss that. But what was frustrating for me is that I was running quite a successful design studio and I was feeling the heat. You know, I was thinking like, even I'm going to have to up and move. And when the my landlord was enthusiastically describing how we'd knock our studio down and build these probably not beautifully designed architectural luxury apartments. Yes, I was a pretty, pretty annoyed, but I quickly flipped that and I realized that I had to channel that emotion to making. And that project 
again, if you interviewed my staff during that time, now they were on the edge, you know, because they, they, they're used to sort of, let's go to Paul Cox's studio and do CAD or do design. And I was with them drilling with a diamond drill with sound that is extremely uncomfortable for months taking all this material from the ground. But like I described, that tension, that emotion, you use it to create stillness and something, you know, hopefully that connects to people and people can feel it. They're obviously not feeling the tension, but they're, they're feeling that there's, there's energy gone into these pieces. You know, they are, yeah, I mean, it's just, even just thinking about it, it brings me back, but I'm super proud of that work. It was a comment on the changing face of London and creatives and other workers being forced out of areas for, for luxury flats. But did your landlord, he didn't have a clue what you were doing. He lived on our street, which was even slightly more odd. The fact that this was happening behind closed doors. We had, we kept an eye out, you know, and <laughs> we got lucky, you know, we really got, lu- we really got lucky on that one because if you've seen the pictures of what we did, yeah, I have, we yeah. took it very seriously. By the way, we had um, someone who scanned the floor, made sure that we weren't going into foundations or gas pipes. You know, obviously we, it wasn't just like some crazy idea. That would be bad. That would be very bad. Yeah. <laughs> but we were doing things. I mean, but I just find it so amazing sometimes, you know, when, when I wake up sometimes and think about some of the things I've done, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I feel so good about that, that one day I can, I can, I can talk about these moments and people say, what do you do again? Was it your designer? Is that, is that what a designer does? I love that. Mm. It's not about doing stuff that other people don't do. That's not what it's about. It's about for me personally, just knowing that I've, as I've mentioned just before, you know, it's just being very true to who I am and the idea. And how did the landlord react when he found out? Presumably he must have walked in at some point and seen his floor full of holes. He never saw that. He never saw that. We filled them up with newspaper and we skimmed over the top and and painted. So, hey, you know, it's one of those things, you know, it might come back. It might come back to get us. It depends how, how good this podcast is if it goes yeah, I was out. Gonna say, it depends whether you listen. I mean, it's getting a bigger audience every time, Paul, so you never know. <laughs> yes. He didn't sell the studio in the end. Is this still where you are? Is it, have you moved since Incredibly. Then? you know, we know things change, right? You know, we had, there was Brexit, there was yeah, yeah, COVID, yeah. there was, and things haven't lined up for him yet, you know, and we've managed to extend. Nothing's set, but we're okay for now. Interestingly, you know, it helped the process because once you realize that you potentially could move, you know, there, there is something liberating about that. And you, you sort of understand how, if you were just going to grab one thing from the studio and run, what would that be? You know, and, and that would be my sketchbook and, you know, and I can, I can do it. You know, I can actually can do that. I can carry mm. on my process. You know, I, I get obsessed with like a studio and things, but in the end, that freedom of being able to, as long as my brain is working and I have a team around me, we can bring projects to life. And there'll always be pieces of your studio floating about the design art market, presumably. Yeah. There's a few pieces out there and there's a few pieces that we kept. Okay. You know, uh, you know, the gallerist says, oh, good, great news. We've sold one of the tables. And I'm like, well, I'm not, do we need to sell it? You know, <laughs> because they're so important to us. Um, so we've actually got some of the pieces as well. So that will be part of, you know, our collection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, actually. I mean, talking to you, do you ever think how your career would have panned out had you been born 15 years later? I wonder. I mean, you talk about the shape of London. But you're also forged at quite a particular time at the Royal College of Art itself under Ron Arad. An entire generation of creatives came out who sat somewhere between industrial design, art and craft. And the college doesn't seem to produce that kind of student any longer. I I wonder where you would have fitted in had you been born, you know, 15 years later. Well, I mean, the two points there, you know, the Ron Arad point, Mm. I mean, I was lucky, you know, because Ron's energy... His mind is someone I deeply respect and I hope I connect with it somehow in the sense that his creative freedom is something that I, I sort of, I got inspired by seeing him at the Royal College with all these different projects and him just doing them. And he gave that to us. His students took a bit of that. And um, so, yeah, very, very, very lucky to have that and not being scared to do it as well. You know, the fact that a table, piece of public art, you know, to, to use words like, oh, I, I do some art, I do some sculpture, I do public art, furniture, you know, whatever it is. And that comes from the Royal College, that creative freedom. And quite importantly, is the type of students that were there. You know, I remember studying with, with a doctor. He's actually still a doctor. Just, I do actually see him. He's on Wall Street. Ron Arad let him in to the course, not because he had a, he came from a design background, but because he wanted to pursue a, his ideas. And mm. so I was in a, in a 
the Royal College Design Products Department wasn't full of the same type of person from the same type of education. So that was really interesting. And I, I've heard that it's different now. You know, it's the, the, the way the education system is set up in some places. It's, it's not, they're not able to, to have that confidence, maybe because of how much things cost. Um, and then if I look around how creative people work now in Hackney, for example, it's very, very much computer-based because they can't afford a studio in the same way. They haven't got the luxury of a workshop and big spaces to experiment with. And I would find that very difficult. And I think that that is a shame, you know, and I'm not saying that people who do computer-based three-dimensional product design or whatever, you can't produce good work. But for me making, for me doing a process which is similar to mine, it does lead you in unpredictable directions, mm. which I think is a very healthy component to a creative process. Mm. Can we talk about your background, Paul? Because you were born in, what, 1978 in London. You've talked about your dad. Was art and design, was that part of your childhood? Were you making as a child? No, and it's funny because sometimes when you hear people talk about their creative journey, they'll talk about their parents in a way where they maybe they had artist friends or they were a really creative environment. Mine wasn't really like that because my parents, they wouldn't take me to the Tate Modern, they'll take me to the Science Museum. They wouldn't take me to the Design Museum and they'll take me to the Natural History Museum. So I was, uh, that was my inspiration. I actually mm. didn't go to an art gallery until I was probably 20 years old. What did they do, Paul? So my dad was um, a typesetter right. and a printer. So there was obviously quite an interesting kind of mm. tradition of making. He was making up words with metal and, mm. you know, letterpress and things like this. Um, and my mum was, you know, she brought the, brought up the family, but what they did do, which I'm so pleased that they did, you know, they supported us. They helped us as much as they could. They gave us confidence and they didn't push anything from them onto us. You know, if I wanted to try something, my dad would say, yeah, let, let's give it a go. And so he's part of that. He's always been supportive. And yes, we had a working, quite a working class background. There wasn't everything on offer, but what was on offer was being in a very multicultural part of London, being part of a really strong community and a very supportive family background and the neighbours and the school. It felt really good. I feel very, you know, that's, that's one of the, the, the real benefits of London is the mix of people and the, the cultures you live with and beside. What were you like at school? You mentioned school. What were you like? Because you've got this quite scientific brain as well. Were you good at lots of different subjects? I was very hardworking, I, I think, a bit of a, I liked sport. I liked, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back, there's such a pressure, isn't there? In your teenage years, you have to sort of focus what you're going to do, what's your A-levels, what, you know, and I, I enjoyed maths. I enjoyed physics. I liked art. I liked design. I suppose design was a subject I, I really liked, but I sort of didn't know. And I just sort of had this sort of fantasy of being a pilot again, just quite a naive thing, but it was just probably came from a film I watched and that looks like a, a cool thing to do, but you look very smart in the uniform, Paul. Just so you know. <laughs> but what that did is that got me thinking about studying maths and physics and I combined that with design and art. So I had this kind of this mix. I didn't know which way to go, but I think that was part of the pilot scheme. You had to have these two subjects in there, which quickly disappeared because I get a little bit scared flying, but that aside, that mix of subjects was really important for me. I had this sort of balance and that really kind of unfolded and made sense when I did my BA and then made more sense when I was at the Royal College. So for example, when others were in the studio taking racks of wood from the workshop and cutting it, I was looking at electricity or mm. soldering or equations and things like that. I'm not incredible at them, but I'm, I see a beauty in it. I love things that make sense. You know, they sort of balance out. And I think a lot of the work, I'm even looking at something I'm showing in Milan, you know, people will look at it and they try to sort of decode it. Like, how's that working? But it's got not just glass making and craft, but it's got electricity and light and color. And in the end, the composition, the balance between science and art and creativity, it rests. And I look at that and I feel happy because it's, mm. it's not just one thing. Mm. I mean, you talk about going from your BA because you studied at Sheffield Hallam yeah. and then went on industrial design at Sheffield Hallam and then went on to the Royal College. And I'm, I'm interested in what your work looked like when you first arrived at the Royal College. What kind of things are you interested in? I 
I did well on my BA, but to be fair, I knew when I was applying to the Royal College that the work, it wasn't that interesting, to be honest. Mm. It was like ticking boxes, obviously had some creativity in there, but I knew it really didn't represent my fire. Well, you bribed your way in, didn't you? This is the story? This is the story because I got to, I looked at it and I thought, you know what, I might get an interview, but actually it's not that different compared to everyone else's. So I thought, you know, what, what is it? What do I do? And I, my, my uh, flatmate had just got a scanner from Staples, 99 quid, I think it was. And I cheekily got a five pound note and scanned it both sides, printed it out. And I thought, oh, that doesn't look like a five pound note. Then I cut it with a scalpel. I thought that looks a bit more like a five pound note. Then I scrunched it up and it became this five pound note. And I thought, (laughs) here here we go. And I printed out a stack of money, fake counterfeit, put it in an envelope. And I said, why choose me? And that was actually why I got an interview. So when I I went into the room, Ron was playing with his money and he was like, how did you make it? How did you do it? How did you do it? So we spent 20 minutes talking about my counterfeit technique. But again, you know, Ron wasn't, you know, he knew in a way, he probably did know that someone who's like 17, 18, 19, they're not going to, their work will be of a a standard, but it's not going to be where it needs to, to be. So he's looking for something else, that curiosity, the energy that someone who is accepted to the Royal College, you know, is going to give it all, you know, sleepless nights, questioning your insecurities, being proud of the work, doubting it, doing good presentations, bad presentations, just trying everything out. And that's what I did. And that's what we did as a group of people there. We, we just went on this whirlwind creative journey and that led to us being able to continue it. Ron Arad, quite famously, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, said that if you left the Royal College under him, that you were going to be unemployable. And you never wanted to work for anybody else, right? No, I mean, no, I, I graduated. And the, my business partner, Joanna Pino, she went to work for Pentagram, but we right. were flatmates in Labrook Grove, very, very close. And she was texting me saying, oh, you know, I'm doing some good projects here, but, you know, I'm a bit restless. Because she was thinking about what I was doing because I had this opportunity through Ingo Mauer. So I had these, my, I carried on. I graduated and I had this sort of goal of Milan. I was making these things and she loved that. It was so exciting for her. And so suddenly she said, look, I'll leave Pentagram. Why don't we just start this thing together? I was like, really? How, how would that, how would that work? But my dad said, you know, don't be scared. Just go on the, go on the journey because you're two people, you trust each other. Yeah. Um, and we did, we, we went to Milan and we started our company a year after the Royal College. Joanna was, was somebody I was going to talk to you about. Obviously, you've mentioned her a lot. How do you work together? What does she bring to the mix? Because she is vital to what you do, right? I, I think you've described her as a protector of your ideas, which I rather like. Yeah, she's, she's, she really is someone who protects and respects my creativity. You know, there's being someone like me with my character. Without her, I'll be very vulnerable because I'm not saying that people would exploit it, but it's very you know, when you want to get your work out there, it's almost like you would accept anything to do it, especially when you're young. Oh yeah, you're going to give me the opportunity to do it. Okay, I'll definitely do it. And you wouldn't, you almost don't see the the value in it. But actually what Joanna's done is she comes from a creative background. She's, she's, she's stepped into a business side of a creative studio. So she, she understands it. She's on the same vision as me. She wants to do this work that is, is genuine and pushing boundaries and, you know, experimentation. But she also knows that, we should be valued and people should respect it and they should finance it and pay for it because ultimately without creativity, a lot of companies can't start their journey, which then leads to um, commerciality. So I've been very, um, very lucky that, that Joanna came into my life and we work really well together. It's not straightforward. It's very passionate. It's very direct. The studio there's no filter. You know, if, if Joanna disagrees with me, she'll say it straight out there and I'll, I'll do the same. But within those fast paced discussions, we get there and we quickly make decisions and we, we agree, we move on and we carry on. She didn't disagree with you digging up the studio floor then? Well, she did disagree with me. Um, and I said, <laughs> I said, look, we will do this because it's really, really important. And she said, look, because she was pregnant at the time. She said, look, I'm cooking, you know, I'm doing my thing here. You do it. You call me when it's done. She backed me, but she wasn't in the studio, which is fair enough. Right. You know, and we've learned to, you know, COVID, you know, as uh, we all went through it and we know now that the studio, I need to be here a lot. Joanna does need to be here, but her distance from the studio, she's working all the time, but she doesn't need to actually physically be here all the time. And that distance again, allows her to see it in clarity 
And that's another part of a creative studio that's really important. And I am actually working on a proposal of something written, which will be sort of hopefully um, describing a lot of these stories more in depth and the importance of people like Joanna and just sort of in a way what we're talking about, like, but really just discussing what being a creative person's like, because you go to someone's website, it gives you no idea about the journey that these projects go through and what it's really like to be a designer. Mm, mm. I mean, uh, we're coming towards the end of our hour, but before we get there, there's one project I'd very much like to talk to you about, Yeah, which is frankly, because it's fascinating from a materials and process point of view. And I'd love to focus on your free series for a moment where you use temperature to bond metals and create products as a result. How does this freezing process work, Paul? I mean, you started by burying pieces of metal in under the snow, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I sort of questioning, you know, when I, when I think back at early discussions I've had or observations where people talk about, they might say something that's really beautifully made, that's beautifully crafted. They were looking at sort of like bicycle frames or the way that wooden table legs connected to the tabletop, that joining of materiality usually requires a screw or a weld or glue or some fixing. And I was thinking to myself, wouldn't it be just beautiful if it was, you could just do that invisibly and keep it the purest joining of materiality. And that led me to, as you mentioned, burying metal tubes in the snow. We made a measurement on the OD, the outside diameter before it went in. And then when we put it in and left it to freeze, took it out, it was ever so slightly smaller. We're talking hundreds of a millimeter smaller, but that little shrinkage means that if you make a hole, which is perfect fit, when it goes in, it goes in slightly smaller. When it comes back to room temperature, it's expanded by that small amount and you get this incredibly strong seal, this lock. And suddenly that was a a moment. Again, when I talk about that emotion of excitement, just to, to feel that I knew I didn't know exactly what happened, but I knew that a collection could be born from that smallest amount, that invisible expansion and contraction. And so what we did is we started to take metals that you can't usually connect together. So there are certain metals that you can't weld, but this freeze technique means that you can take copper and freeze it onto stainless steel and and brass onto mild steel. And we had this incredible year of experimentation and making and giving birth to this Freeze collection again. That was in Liverpool. That project was all about working with a a factory um, who had the specialist technology to help us make holes and turn cylinders to the tolerance that we need. Because you weren't burying pieces in the snow any longer. I'm guessing that was the first the pure idea was the snow, but then the logistics of that would be impossible. So we we then used liquid nitrogen. So the whole thing was very theatrical. Freezing. We had the, the smoke. And again, being in a factory environment, you know, leaving the London studio to then work in the factory for months, working with that community, you know, there was mutual respect, a lot of laughter, and they're part of the process, really. They, they really helped us bring it to life. Mm. And as you get older and you have a family, I kind of wonder if you feel there's a, a sense of permanence is more important to your work. I mean, obviously there are pieces of furniture that you've done that are going to stick around for a number of years, but... Quite a lot of your public art pieces, they're kind of ephemeral by their nature. I mean, would you like to do more architecture? I know know you've done this bridge in Cape Town. Is that an ambition, I wonder, to leave a mark? I suppose it is there a little bit, but the architectural work, the big scale stuff, you know, which we don't do, we don't do buildings, we don't do, I mean, we're not close to that, but it's, it's a very different way to run a creative studio. The stakes are a lot higher. There's a lot more structure. You know, there's a lot of people involved in every single project and there's a lot happening. It becomes, you know, and sometimes I speak to architects, friends of mine, they sometimes say like, you know, I don't really know exactly where the idea started or what happened in the middle and how it even ended up. Do you mean, because it's just, there's so many things happening and that's not me, you know, that's not a process that I enjoy, but I think working in the public realm, you know, with the please be seated, there are, there's two permanent versions of that at the moment out there. Oh, are there? Interesting. Where are they? They're in Shanghai and one in Hong Kong. I haven't seen them yet because right. of COVID. You know, every time I check my phone, there's someone who's added me into that. And there is a real beautiful feeling when I can see people really enjoying that piece of work. So as I say, I like the public realm. I love the idea of having things out there, but not from a, an ego side of things. It's more the fact that it's just this connection to more people. You know, I, I just think making public works mean more people can see it and enjoy it. So that 
as something that the studios is pursuing, doing a lot more work of that nature. But I don't necessarily see it as architecture as such. I see it of a scale of architecture, but I see it from a, a very pure creative source, more coming from like an art studio. Mm. Brilliant. Paul, our time is pretty much up. Traditionally, I always ask this question, what have you got next? You've alluded to something that's going to be happening in Milan in April, I'm guessing. Can you, um, can you tell us what that might be? I'm not going to describe it fully, but it's, I, th- I think I, I did say a little bit of it, but it's, it's, it uses cast glass. The technique we're using is very organic. It's very freeform. It's not me imposing a f- shape onto it. It's allowing the glass to expand and create kind of very organic shapes, but it takes this really lovely texture from the air. It ripples like water. So there's going to be that, that element to it. There's also going to be some light. It's suspended. There's a bit of a, a veil in there of a, how is this possible? But the, there is no answer. The answer is not the interesting bit. It's the way that it makes you feel. So that's going to be a Milan gesture. We're working on some NFT pieces of work, which we're doing Ooh, some, okay. we're doing a lot more sculptural work, public art, some kind of please be seated type gestures and hopefully a couple of things for London Design Festival. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very exciting, actually. I'd, I'd love to explain more. And also I think we should chat again. You know, I think you got me to talk where you, you feel a, a genuine side of a creative output, what it takes to bring projects to life. But there is more there. And maybe when we get to know each mm. other more, we can dive in a little bit more. Maybe that can actually show you and tell you some more stories. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, I'd be delighted to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, I think I've taken up enough of your time. You better go and do some proper work. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Really appreciate thank that. Thank you that so much. Great. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much. To learn more about Paul, go to paulcoxystudio.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. I'm going to take a little rest now, but Material Matters will return for another run in May. See you then. Thanks for listening.